Um, I don't know that I have ever done this before, but uh, actually, can you just turn it down a hair? I feel pretty hot up here. Thanks. Um, I'm going to ask you if you would bow your heads with me. Just take a moment and pray, because I had a message all prepared, but I began to feel to go a completely different route uh, this morning, one that I did not prepare for. And just agonizing over whether to do that or believe God for life in it or to continue with what I prepared. So would you just bow your heads and let's ask the Lord for wisdom and His leading. Okay, thank you. I appreciate you bearing with me. Um, I guess I'm going to go a different way. I'm sorry, Elizabeth, you can just scrap everything there for now. I don't know what I'll do with that, but I'm going to go with the direction that I felt. Uh, If you could open up to Genesis.
chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'm going to look up something. I'm not texting, I promise. Um, I had some time last evening. Um, we were in the uh, emergency department with my mother-in-law. Uh, she is 94 years old, and she fell and uh, just seemed a bit confused, so we thought it would be better to get her checked out rather than take a chance that there could be something more significant going on. So uh, any of you have ever gone to the ER know that doesn't matter whether you're in the express track or not. There's nothing fast about it. Uh, it is um, expressly slow. Um, no, no judgment on them. It's just the way it is. So because of that, I had a lot of time on my hands to think and pray. And I began to think about some things that are very pertinent to me. And I took them to heart for myself in my own life personally uh, how I was raised, how I think about things, how I process things. But I also, this morning, as I came in for uh, church and then prayer time and then during worship, began to feel more and more as if perhaps this might be something for us as a people if it would have implications. So let me ask you it this way. Um, how many of you here, if you can be so vulnerable, if you can't, that's fine, I understand. It's hard in a group to be that open and honest, how many of you have struggled at times with fear issues, fear, anxiety, that kind of stuff? You know, uh, I'm not saying you live afraid constantly, but you've had times where you feel like you've been engulfed. Is that right? Sometimes it can even be overwhelming. Uh, how many of you have, um, let me ask it, uh, and again, forgive me for just winging this whole thing, because that's what it is. Um, how many of you have ever done something wrong, so wrong, don't, don't just raise your hand, because you all have. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, the scripture is pretty clear, right? There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the scripture is pretty clear. So I know you've all done wrong. How many of you have ever done something so wrong that you didn't know if you could recover from it? I mean, it was at root, it was shameful. Is that right? Is that a good word, shame? Any of you ever deal with issues of shame? Um, what I did last night is I went to um, three primary different accounts in the Scripture that I just want to talk to you about this morning. I don't even know where this will go. If Jesus doesn't help, then it's not going to go anywhere. But I'm going to talk to you about what I had been feeling. Genesis chapter 2, uh, God recounts in chapter 2 the story of, cre of creation. 
He goes through all the things. And then he puts some emphasis upon the fact that he created man. Now, everything else that he had created, he looked at it and he said it was good. But when he got done creating man, and by definition, the word should really be mankind, because that's really the root of that Hebrew word. Uh, When he got done creating mankind, what was his pronouncement about it? It wasn't just good, it was very good. So, if you look at Genesis, and Genesis is like the book of creation, the book of beginnings, but there is a hermeneutical law that guides how we interpret the Bible. And one of the things that the hermeneutical law teaches us is the law of first mention. So that when something first occurs, it has some of the greatest impact, some of the greatest import to it. So when you look at mankind, God's assessment from the very beginning was that mankind is very good. That's his assessment. So that everything about man was very good. But look at the last verse of chapter 2, if you would. Last verse of chapter 2 in Genesis. (coughs) And they, speaking about Adam and Eve, man and woman, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. My question is, and this is what I began to kind of grapple with a little bit last evening, why did God say that? Why did God make sure that his word, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, why did he put in his word for us to read centuries later, that man and woman were naked and their inner heart mechanism was such that they were not ashamed. Why would he say that? Why wouldn't he say they were glad? They were happy. They were joyful. Why didn't he say they were scared or they were cold? Why didn't he say any of those things? I would suggest this. It's because God knew that from this point forward, one of the predominant things that mankind would struggle with is the issue of shame. And he wanted us to know that from the beginning, that was not his intent. That from the beginning, God's intent were that we would live unashamed. There's a scripture in Romans, uh, well, a couple times it occurs, it repeats itself. But it says, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, a stumbling block. Chapter 9, you can find it for yourself, also chapter 10. A stumbling block, and those who believe on him shall not be ashamed. Shall not be ashamed. So, the question that I began to grapple with a bit last night is, if God's assessment, if God's intention from the beginning was that we live life unashamed, where in the world does all this shame come from? It's a pretty easy one. Thank you, Harold. Uh, sin. Sin taints everything. Now, I, I said to you from the beginning that Paul's pronouncement is, all have sinned. Everyone have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
God is glorious. God's up here. And we mere mortals, human beings, fall short of that glory. We have sinned. We have gone another direction. Every man has gone his own way. And I would suggest to you, that's not the problem, though. I would suggest to you that what we sang about this morning, what Jesus Christ did upon the cross, dealt with our sin. Did Jesus not deal with your sin? Or do you have to work out your own salvation now? Completely. You have to pay for it all yourself. So if sin is not the problem, why do we then still struggle with issues of shame, of fear, of a lack of peace, of anxiety? I want to suggest, uh, and again, this is kind of where my grappling went, that from the moment sin entered the world, Satan has been using the same tool because he doesn't have any other tools from that point on. And that tool is not to deal with what we do. What we do can be wrong. We can sin. We can do wrong. And when we do wrong, we should feel a level of guilt. I did wrong. We should be able to say, I did wrong and I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? We do wrong. That evokes a feeling of guilt. But our problem is guilt deals with what we do. Shame deals with who we think we are. Shame deals with an inner core issue. And because we have done something wrong and we feel guilty, we add to it this sense of shame. So that even when we have now brought what we have done wrong before God the Father, we have said, I repent, I am sorry. And by the way, I want to remind you something that has just, it's become such a reality to me, is that when we think of repentance, we tend to think of repentance as groveling in the dirt. I am so sorry. Begging God for forgiveness when the way in which the Jews understood repentance was this word teshuva. And it literally means to come home. So that when he says repent and be baptized every one of you, they understood it as a a call home. This is not how you were meant to be. This is not how you were made. This is not bringing you joy and peace. Why don't you come home? That's what he's offering us. And instead, we deal with our guilt issues. We deal with the fact that we have done wrong. And every one of us have. But we continue to carry our own shame issues. Even though the same thing that bought your salvation, the same thing that paid the price for your guilt, also paid the full price for your shame. Now, having said that, um, would you turn over to Luke chapter 8? Luke 8. And I'm still looking for a verse. Thank you, Lord.
Are you in Luke? Good. Okay. Luke chapter 8, and um, let's begin reading in verse um, 40. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So word had spread far and wide about the marvelous works of Jesus Christ, the things that he had done that had boggled the mind of all of the religious people around him. Talk about being countercultural. In their own culture, it was all built upon performance. Jesus comes on the scene, and he hangs out with sinners. He says, sinners, those who are sick need a doctor, not those who think they're well. And he, he bugged the religious people to no end. But the sinners loved him. The people who knew, I have a need. And that's really where it starts. I have a need. It's being honest enough to say, I need a Savior. So, They welcomed him because they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had only a daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. So here's Jesus. He comes into this area. Jairus, a ruler in the synagogue, comes and says, Can you come and help my daughter who is dying? But then the next verse says, He was thronged. By multitudes. He was pressed on every side. Look at the next verse. Now a woman, first strike, first strike. In their culture, do you realize that the Jewish leaders said that you shouldn't even bother teaching a woman to read because she doesn't need that skill? It would be useless to her. Do you know that in their culture, a woman was counted less than a cow was in value? They were mere chattel. No one was to speak to a woman. A man would not even refer to his wife in public, lest someone think that he's giving place to a woman. In their culture, a woman did not carry the level of respect and honor that we press so hard for within the kingdom of God and within our own culture. A woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. Number two, she had an issue of blood. What that means is rather than having her monthly cycle, she had a daily cycle for 12 years. And we're not talking about days, and forgive my bluntness, but we're not talking about days when we had tampons and modern plumbing or any of that kind of stuff. We're talking about messiness, smelliness. It was not fun for them in those days. And when a woman had her period, under law, back in Leviticus 19, I think it is, somebody can correct me, it's either 19 or 15, Under law, when a woman had her period, she was considered morally and ceremonially unclean. And she had to be careful about everything she did. She was isolated from everybody because anywhere she sat, anywhere she laid, anything she touched, not just the blood touch, but anything she touched because of the issue of blood became unclean. And if you touched a woman who had her period, you had to go out of the camp until that night and then appear with a sacrifice in order to be let back in and be acceptable. She 
was ceremonial unclean, not for seven days, which is what the initial portion of the scripture says, but the scripture goes on and says, and on the eighth day, so it's eight days now, on the eighth day, a woman who had her period was to bring a sacrifice to the priest to show that the period was done and she could now enter back into the life of the family, of the tribe, of the community as a full person again. Now, how many of you ever saw my big fat Greek wedding? Okay. Um, I tend to think of uh, Jewish life kind of like that. Not having a whole lot of experience in it, but knowing what I've read, it was kind of like when they were going to prepare food. It wasn't something where mom went in the kitchen and made food. The whole clan got together and we're going to make a big feast. We're going to do it big time. Everybody's there cooking. Everybody's there talking. They're having a party of it. The whole time that's going, you've got one of their members who's sitting in a dark room all alone, ostracized from everybody because of all things, she would have her period. By the way, did she just decide to have her period? I don't think so. No one, no woman I've ever heard said, yeah, I would choose that. I speak like I know what I'm talking about, by the way. Yeah. Um, here's the point. While all of the rest of the ladies, young girls up to the older mamas, are in there cooking and having fun, here's this one poor lady all alone in the dark in another part. You know, you, you realize that in their culture, they weren't talking about big rooms. They didn't have like big kitchens and big dining rooms and big bedrooms and big basements. They didn't have, They had one or two room houses and they did everything together. So she's put off all alone. Don't talk to anybody. Don't touch anybody. Don't touch anything. Once you sit there and you're done sitting there, we'll take that and we'll take it out and we'll burn it. That's the kind of thing a woman with a monthly cycle dealt with. Can you imagine what this woman had to deal with on a day-by-day-by-day cycle over 12 years? What does it feel like when the community of your family says, we can't touch you, we can't be near you, you can't be around us anymore? What does that do in the heart of a person? The scripture goes on to say that she spent all that she had going to doctors. Well, of course she would. Who doesn't want to be restored back to family, back to community? Can you imagine what it was like for this woman who probably living just in a dark corner of a room someplace, or maybe they had even built her by this point a separate little shed that she could stay in, and they would bring food and set it outside the door disposable plates, plasticware, anything so that they wouldn't have to do extra work themselves. And somehow, she got word that Jesus was coming to town. Somehow, she got word that Jesus could do that which no one else had ever done in all of history. And in her heart, something caught fire. She began to say, maybe I don't have to live with shame anymore. If I can just get to Jesus, shame can be washed away. Shame 
can be cleansed. But you got to understand, she, she's all alone. She's ostracized, doesn't have a lot of wherewithal. She knows that anybody with whom she comes in contact is themselves going to be unclean. So you got all these people who are gathered around Jesus, every single one of them. Every single one of them she touches is now unclean. How do you think they would think about her if they knew that she knew she was unclean and still came through there touching them? But there was something in her heart that said, I don't care anymore. I can't live this way. I can't live carrying the weight of shame for something I didn't even do, but just for who I am. She probably, we don't know, she probably covered herself up so that no one would recognize her, covered her face, put a heavy shawl around her trying to protect people a little bit with heavy wool or something like that. And she comes into the area where Jesus is thinking, if I could only. And what does she say? She says, if I could only touch the hem of his garment. Just the hem. What does she say? She doesn't say, if I could only touch the hem of his garment, maybe something would happen. If only I could touch the hem of his garment, I could maybe get an opportunity to get a hearing with him. She says, if only I could touch the hem of his garment. I'll be healed. Now, it's important to understand something about the hem of the garment. In the Old Testament, one of the things that the men were taught to do is that after they would make their garment, and usually it was a somewhat nicer garment that they would do this with, after they would make their garment, they would put fringe on the bottom. And that fringe had a name that I can't pronounce. T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T-H. T-Z-I-T-H. One. Can you stand up here? Okay, this fringe, here. What is it? Tzitzit. Tzitzit. That's the fringe. Okay? Tzitzit. Tzitzit. Now you can sit, sit. That, that, that fringe was determined by God in his word not to be touched by anybody but family. No one could touch it. It was unseemly. It was unheard of. That was special property. Family could touch it, could wash it, could clean it, but nobody else. And she says, if I could only make it to the French. Talk about going against every societal code. The very thing that had debilitated her, though, is also the very thing that drove her. I can't live this way anymore. We talked last week about authenticity. And there comes a point in your life when you say, I can't live like this anymore. I can't pretend. She pushes her way through the crowd, knowing that everybody she touches is now unclean, would have to leave the camp, go outside the camp until that evening and make sacrifice to come back in. Everything she touches is unclean. She pushes her way through, and she touches his garment, just the fringe of it, the hem, in faith, believing that if she touches it, she'll be healed. And when she touches it, unbelievably, something happened. She was miraculously and instantaneously healed, and she knew it. 
she knew something had changed. Can you imagine, by the way, how weak she had to have been by this point in time? The, just the loss of blood alone. But she touches his garment, and all of a sudden, she knows she's healed, and strength begins to flow into her. And she thinks, I can kind of skulk away. I can go back to my little shed, and then maybe later on tonight, I'll appear to the priest, and I'll make sacrifice, and he'll say, whoa, I don't know how this happened, but great. That would have been the wonderful ending that she wanted. But no, not Jesus. He stops in his track and says, wait a minute. Somebody touched me. You know, of course, all the disciples, they're, they're, they're like us. They're clueless. All the disciples are saying, Lord, what are you talking about? Somebody touched you. Everybody's touching you. He goes, no, I felt power. I felt virtue go out of me. Now, again, you got to remember, this woman has lived with shame for 12 years. She comes on the scene, presses through, and she says, look at it. Verse 27, now when she saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. It's like, I don't even care anymore. I'm healed. Yes, I did stuff. I shouldn't have pressed through and touched you on my way. I know that you are ceremonial and clean, but I don't care anymore. I'm healed. And by the way, the same healing that healed me can make you clean too. You don't have to worry about being unclean when you're in the presence of Jesus. But look at what he says. Look at his first words. What's his first word? Daughter. Daughter. You're not supposed to touch the hem of my garment unless you're family. And what's he call her? Daughter. See, when you become part of his family, shame is dealt with. Now, turn over, if you would, to John 8. John 8. Verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned but what do you say? And again, their question wasn't a question trying to ascertain what's the best way to handle this. Their question was clearly to catch him, to trick him, to press him, either into saying, yes, Moses said it, so you better kill her, or they thought if he goes the opposite way, which he had been, he'd been very kind to sinners, very gentle, very loving, very embracing, if he says, no, let's just be nice, they're going to say, well, then you don't honor the word of God because God wrote Moses' word to us. So he would be caught either way. But I love what Jesus does. And again, here's this woman caught in adultery 
And you know that there's a missing equation here. Because the Bible, the same portion they're referring to where it says that a woman caught in adultery should be stoned, says that they, the man and the woman, should be stoned. But where's he? I guess this is one of those times when it doesn't take two to tango. At least in their mind, the only guilty one was a woman because she was worth nothing. They used the law even to excuse their own sin. This, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his fingers as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, now get the picture. Here's this time where Jesus is sitting in front of all these people teaching. And so it's kind of like, here he is, there they all, they're all listening to him. They're saying no one's ever taught with such authority. It's amazing teaching, wonderful teaching. And then the Pharisees, the religious leaders and the scribes, the lawyers, the, those people who have knowledge of the word, they come and they bring this woman. We don't know what kind of form. We don't know, was she able to grab a blanket from off the bed and cover herself? We don't know. Some commentators say she was naked because that's how you were to be stoned. I don't know. But there she is on the ground in the midst, and they're all pointing at her, staring at her and saying, what are you going to do about her? And this is the first time I ever noticed this. Jesus stoops down and writes on the ground. And I've always thought the reason he did that was probably writing things that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the scribes could read. Like when he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, I thought he's probably just enumerating for them the sin. You know, all of your sins, I'm writing them down so that you know God knows what you've done. What you did in secret, I'm bringing to light right now so they'd be staring at it. I thought maybe they were writing down the name of the woman's partner so that the religious leaders knew, you're not fooling me, where's he? I thought all of that. I thought that all along. But for the first time last night, I thought, I'm wondering if the reason Jesus stooped down and began to write on the ground was to divert their attention away from the woman to him so that they would no longer be staring at her and her shame and he would take the shame upon himself. Because that's just the kind of thing that I think Jesus would do. I don't want you staring at her. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. And then they pester him some more. And he says, okay, fine. You want to do what is right. I agree. Moses said that. If you sin, death is the end. The soul that sinneth, it shall surely die, is also what Moses said. So, evidently, none of you guys have ever sinned, or else you would be here too being stoned. Therefore, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And it says that they went away from the oldest to the youngest. I think it probably is because the oldest had been around a little longer and kind of caught on quicker. I don't know. But then he looks at this woman and he says, woman, where are those accusers of you? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What I want you to hear this morning is that in the confrontation of the generations since Adam, where we have carried a burden that was never God's intent that we would carry, not merely the burden of guilt, but the burden of shame, 
that it's not merely that I do things that are wrong, but that I myself am wrong at the core of my being. There is something in the essence of who I am that is unworthy. I have to do something to prove that his sacrifice was worth it. I have to do good works. I have to act a certain way. I have to behave a certain way. But every single day, you awaken with a sense that I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I carry shame as that same cloak that that woman with the issue of blood wrapped around herself. But I want you to hear today what Jesus is saying. He's saying, neither do I condemn you. Remember the verse that I quoted back from Romans, I think it is Romans 9. It says, I lay in Zion a stumbling block, a chief cornerstone. Those who believe on me will not be put to shame. That's his promise to us today. You don't have to live a life of hiddenness. And maybe in some ways this, which I was going to talk about the second part of community and authenticity. I don't know what I'll do with that. Um, Maybe this really does have a lot to do with that. Because how can you live in community while you're hiding behind your masks of shame? Your fear that somebody would ever see the real you. The things you struggle with. The questioning that's in your own mind and heart. The things that you have done that you think are so bad that they're almost unforgivable. And you continue on your course because you know nothing else to do. You're like the woman at the well who just continues husband after husband, guy after guy, until you finally find somebody that you think is going to make you whole. And it's not just the guys and the girls, it's both. Everybody's searching for somebody. What was it? Uh, (laughs) I'm probably going to get this wrong. I'm thinking it's Frank Sinatra. No. Everybody needs somebody sometime. Everybody needs somebody who will love them, who will accept them. And I want to suggest to you that in this life, the primary one we need is Jesus Christ. We need God. We need to receive what he has done for us. He has not merely dealt with our guilt of sins past. He has dealt with our shame, our sense of unworthiness. He is the one who said, not merely all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true. Absolutely. That is true. He's the one who also said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made from your mother's womb. That's God's declaration over you. And in order for us to have the kind of community we want where real people can come in and feel like I can be real in front of you because you're real people. You got stuff, I got stuff. You've done stuff, I've done stuff. But we're on a journey. We're on a journey towards him. And in that environment, people can actually be free to actually begin to grapple with their stuff. Grapple with the guilt of the things they've done and grapple with the shame of how they feel. That's what I felt God was speaking last night to me personally, but then I began to feel today, is it possible it's for somebody here? So, uh, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads.
I'm going to ask you to do something that might be hard for you. I don't know. If you can't, that's fine. I understand. No judgment whatsoever. But if you're a person here who struggles with feelings of unworthiness, of shame, of just this almost overwhelming fear of doom that could come at any time, judgment meted down, you struggle with that. You struggle with anxiety and fears. And you wonder, in your heart of hearts, could God really love me? Does God really love me? I'm going to ask you to do what that woman in Luke chapter 8 did. I'm going to ask you to take courage in what you've heard about Jesus. Can you believe Jesus? For even just this moment, can you believe that Jesus is as good as what you've heard? He doesn't sit with scornful judgment looking down upon you. He looks with love because He who created you in the beginning created you without shame. And you're saying, enough is enough. I'm not going to live this way any longer. I refuse to bow to shame. The enemy's device to keep me in his grips. And you say, Enough is enough. I want freedom in my own soul. I'm going to ask if you would to stand and say, by standing, you're saying, I for one, like that woman, am pressing through the crowd until I touch Jesus. That's what I want. I need to touch Jesus. I need to feel his heart for me. I need to hear him say, you are my beloved daughter, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. In standing, you're saying, I'm not going to live under the weight of this any longer. I refuse to do that. I'm going to begin to battle the enemy who wants to continually overwhelm me with floods of shame as surely as the floods came in the night. He wants shame to be my title, and I refuse it. In standing, you're saying, I'm choosing Jesus. If that's you, I'm going to ask you just to stand and say enough is enough. Again, this, this might not be specifically for you. That's okay. But my prayer as I stood up here agonizing over what to do was it might be for somebody. I'm going to ask you if you are able and willing, just take your hand and put it on your heart. Say, heart, listen to Jesus. Listen to the King of all the earth the one who pronounces and it is, the one who declares that that which is not shall be. He declares his love over you. He declares enough agonizing, enough shame, enough fear that you're not good enough, you're not worthy. You need to hear me declare. He has said, you are mine. You are mine. I chose you from before the foundations of the earth. And I am the one who declares you accepted and acceptable in the beloved. It's not by works of righteousness which you have done, but it's according to his merciful love and kindness. 
That's what he is declaring over you today. You don't have to work it up. We need to find a way to rest in it. To so receive it that I can go back to that same place every single day. Say, I'm his. And he is mine. I am my beloved's. And he is mine. Father, I'm asking you to go deeper than my words. Deeper than even my experience. Because Lord, I stand among these as one who battles this on a day-by-day basis. Go deeper than what I could ever hope to convey. Go by your Holy Spirit and touch hearts, I pray. That they no longer have to be in jails and prisons of shame and fear, of anxiety, of a lack of peace. They no longer have to be those who stand on the outside wishing they could come in. But you have brought them near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I speak hope and courage over them that they will walk with you knowing that you chose them. And that that word that you declared to me at the beginning of this year is the word that you would declare over them. That when they spend time with you, that's your favorite time of the day. You love it when they come near to you. You love it when they draw near. Father, help us as a people to take off masks, take off pretense, and to be real, and to be able to say, although I got stuff, I've got a Savior who's bigger than my stuff. I have a Redeemer. And His blood is greater than my issue of blood. His blood is greater than my shame. Help us to receive that, Father, I pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. Well, that's winging it. I hope that for some of you, it was somehow God's word to you. That's my prayer. That it would make a difference in your life. God bless you guys. Have a great rest of your day.